it's hard, challenging, difficult to find something that doesn't eventually fail you. Have you purchased an appliance recently? They don't make those like they used to. Man, when we had those ugly green ones and those yellow appliances, those are pictures from Harvester's Current Kitchens. Just kidding. When we, when we had those, we thought those would last for decades. Or maybe you think about a companion of a pet that never fails you. A dog or a cat that's always there for you and wearing a mask these days. Or perhaps you have human relationships, friendships uh, at your school or at your workplace, a parent or a spouse or a good friend that has marked that friendship, has marked that relationship with faithfulness. Here's the deal. Man-made items eventually fail. Pets eventually die. And people are sinners. Where, oh where, do we find complete faithfulness? Our study in God's Word this morning centers around this idea of faithfulness. So if you haven't done so yet, would you please open your copy of the Scriptures to the book of Romans. We continue our study through Paul's letter to the Christians who were located in the city of Rome. Both Jewish, Jewish and Gentile Christians were part of that church, we believe. Paul had not yet met them. He was going to go see them. He was going to go and be with them on his way to Spain. Paul uses his epistle, this letter to the, to the church at Rome, before he came to meet them, to communicate the undeserved, unmatched, unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. Today we begin chapter 3. We're kind of in the middle of a larger section that wraps that unwraps the heart of the gospel. So we looked at chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, talking about the priority of the gospel. And now we're in this second bigger section, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to the end of chapter 4, that talks about the heart of the gospel. And we even kind of went below that and subdivided the heart of the gospel. We talked about the righteousness of God is, is revealed through wrath. So the heart of the gospel involves God's anger, God's, God's hatred, God's despite for sin his wrath for sin. The heart of the gospel involves the righteousness of God reigning with complete justice. And we're still in that second sub, subsection there. Eventually, we're going to come to the, to the last part of the heart of the gospel. The righteousness of God is received by faith. But we're still considering that idea that the righteousness of God reigns with justice. Now, now we need God's righteousness. We, we understand that the gospel, the, the scriptures explain to us that, that our only hope is if we obtain God's righteousness. Now, as we think about God's righteousness, we have to understand that part of God's righteousness is wrath. And that it's always happening. He's always meeting it out. The righteousness of God is always reigning with justice. Today, we'll think about God reigning with justice specifically while he remains fully faithful. In our previous two studies in Romans, we have been considering Paul's instruction on the inadequacy of religion in relation to God's judgment on sin. No matter how religious we are, 
we remain on level playing ground with the rest of humanity. We're still sinners. We're not superior to any other sinners because we are more religious than other sinners. Paul has wanted us and communicated to us that all of our religiosity falls short of obtaining God's favor or obtaining that righteousness that we so desperately need. In chapter 1, we learned that rejection of God results in being given over to sin. You remember how we looked at the end of chapter 1 on that? In chapter 2, we learned about the hypocrisy of resting in our own religion. And now, in chapter 3, Paul anticipates objections that his readers or other people who hear him teaching this content, that objections that they will raise to his teaching. You remember how that kind of thing goes, right? You make your case to your kids or to your employer or to whatever, and then you start shooting, shooting down the objections that they might have before any of them even has the opportunity to raise their objections. So that's what we have here in Romans chapter 3. Now the first eight verses is a tough passage. It can be, it can be quite nuanced, and it's Paul's extremely gifted mind on display for us this morning. This week I kept reading commentaries of chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and they kept talking about how it's one of the most difficult passages in Romans. And then I come to Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he says it's one of the most difficult passages in all of the scriptures. And I was like, thank you, brother. That's just the encouragement I needed in my study this week. But since it can be a little bit tricky, I'm going to read the text. We're going to read it together several times this morning. We're going to read it here at the beginning, and we're going to read it a couple times as we go through, just so that the text is saturating our minds. We hope that you've read it ahead of time. We encourage you to do that um, through the weekly email that comes out on Fridays so that you know what text is going to be preached. So let's put our thinking cap, caps on and, and dive into this glorious truth that God's Word gives to us today. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly, or to begin with, because that unto them were committed or given the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Or we could say it like this, what if some were unfaithful, did their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Verse 4, God forbid. Yea, let, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I yet also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we, have as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us, not do, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. It can be a little bit choppy as you read through this. I would encourage you to read a modern translation early, later this afternoon to, to let it really soak into your mind and, and, to, and to help you um, with your understanding of the text. The justice of God. The faithfulness of God. God is holy 
as in completely faithful while simultaneously exercising perfect, holy, H-O-L-Y, justice. One of the most helpful applications of this passage is that it helps us understand how unbelievers may be thinking as the gospel is presented to them. So this text, this passage, the first eight verses of Romans chapter 3, help you understand what an unbeliever may be thinking as you witness to them, as you share the gospel with them. Paul addresses objections to his teachings. The very same objections that may be going through the neighbor of your mind, uh, the, the, the mind of your neighbor or your coworker, and that they, they raise in the conversations with them uh, with, uh, that you have about the gospel. God is faithful. We see it both in his blessing and in his judgment. So we're going to note two ways that God is faithful to bless his people. And then we're going to note two ways that God is faithful to judge his people. So first, God is faithful to bless his people. Verse 1 again. What advantage then has a Jew? Or what profits is there of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly, because that unto them were committed or given the oracles of God. God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to bless his people with his word. Don't draw the wrong conclusion from our studies in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, Paul explains that the law is not adequate because nobody keeps it perfectly. At the very end of, of chapter 2, Paul explains that circumcision profits little. It's not a practice that will gain eternal status before God. Paul has gone to such great lengths to, to inform his readers that religion is completely adequate, inadequate to save. In fact, his argument has been so persuasive. He's, he's come at us so strongly with this idea that religion is completely inadequate that he's basically equated Jews and Gentiles. And in regards to salvation, it's absolutely true. Paul will now continue to develop that argument in the second half of chapter 3. However, he pauses right here and kind of goes down a rabbit trail. And Paul now argues that while religion is not adequate to obtain God's righteousness, religion, circumcision, keeping the law, religious re religiosity, is not adequate for salvation. It is also not worthless. There is value. In other words, be careful not to draw, to, be careful not to draw the wrong conclusion from chapter 2. Paul is not saying that the law or that circumcision are worthless. He's teaching the Jews and us that there is value. There's profitability in those practices. Have you ever been tasked with, uh, asked, maybe in a connection group or uh, friends or whoever asked you to, to, to tell how you came to Christ, to give your salvation testimony? Sometimes those of us who have grown up in a Christian home downplay our experience almost as if our salvation was less dramatic. It took less of God's grace or that the cross was less dramatic for us because we were not saved out of a sinful lifestyle. For instance, I was spared an externally sinful lifestyle before my salvation. I was five when I professed faith in Christ. I was like Callie Stalfer. I was born on a Sunday, then I started going to church every Sunday, and I was, was baptized, not as an infant. I was baptized, and I, by God's grace, I was never addicted to, to liquor or to pornography or to drugs. Didn't have sex outside of marriage. 
I've been a member of a Bible-believing church since I was a teenager. I've committed much of God's word to memory. Romans chapter 2 teaches me that none of that is adequate to obtain salvation for me. None of that is able to obtain God's righteousness that I need. However, Romans 3 teaches me that baptism is indeed an advantage. That memorizing God's word is indeed an advantage. That sexual purity is indeed an advantage. That church membership is indeed an advantage. That's the apostle's point. Was there an advantage to being a, a Jew? and Was there value to circumcision? He says, yes, verse 2, much in every way. There was, in fact, an advantage to being a Jew. What was it? He says, to begin with, or chiefly, the Jews had been given the oracles of God. We should understand this to mean God's word. Maybe if we're getting more specific, it was the promises of God's word. But truly, we could, we could understand it as they had received the word of God. The Jews were recipients of the word. This is huge. Poets and hymn writer William Cooper said it this way, talking about the Jewish people. They, and they only amongst all mankind, received the transcript of the eternal mind, were trusted with his own engraven laws, and constituted guardians of his cause. Theirs were the prophets, theirs the priestly call, and theirs by birth, the Savior of us all. God only did this to a single nation. Remember Moses coming down off the mountain? His face glowed because he had just been with God. There was no greater privilege than to hear directly from God. The greatest benefits to receiving the oracles of God for the Jewish people is that it was through that gift that they received hope. Hope of the coming Messiah. Hope of the one who was to come and give them final rescue. God's word communicated that reconciliation to a, to a holy God was possible through his coming son. So Paul says, yes, being a Jew is indeed an advantage. There are, are many advantages of being a Jew, but the main one is that they have, been, they have been given, they have been committed, the oracles of God. Friend, this is the greatest advantage anyone can have, to be within the hearing of God's word. And today we have... Today, as Christians in 2020, we not only have the Old Testament, like the Jews that Paul was writing to, but we have the New Testament. We have the full written word of God. John Calvin said it this way, This is the principle that distinguishes our religion from all others. That we know that, we know that God has spoken to us and are fully convinced that the prophets did not speak of themselves, but as organs of the Holy Spirit uttered only that which they had been commissioned from heaven to declare. Brothers and sisters, we have the word of God. What, without the Bible, we wouldn't know uh, that we have been created in the image of God and that we are called to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Without the word of God, we would not know how to come to God, how to deal with our own sin that it does matter what we do in this life. We wouldn't know what God is like completely. We wouldn't know the nature and the purpose of man. God blesses his people with his word. That blessing continues today in 2020. We have God's word all around us. We can hear it. We can read it. 
We can think on it. We can memorize it. God's word is readily available for all of us. It's one of the greatest ways in which we experience the faithfulness of God. I fear, I fear that familiarity with God's word, Lancaster County, born, born and bred people, right? We, we, we know God's word. I fear that our familiarity with God's word and the readily availabil- availability of God's word has helped us grow cold or forgetful of the blessing that we hold in our laps this morning. Do you treasure God's word? Do you prioritize putting yourself under the preaching of God's word? Our gatherings for worship services are not only a means of obeying the command to not, for, not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Our gatherings are a practical way for us to be under the preaching and teaching of God's word. Coming, attending a worship service acknowledges, it, it, it acknowledges the huge blessing of being recipients of God's word. Our church has five goals, and one of them is that we preach the full counsel of God's word. We need all of God's word. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all profitable for us. Brothers and sisters, discipline yourself. Lead your family. Direct one another to foster hearts that welcome God's word. God was faithful to bless his people, first of all, with his word. Secondly, God was faithful to bless his people after faithlessness. Look at verse 3 again. For what if some did not believe? I think modern translations might say, what if some were not faithful? Shall their unbelief, shall their faithlessness make the faith of God without effect? Now, quick clarification, second part of verse 3. The faith of God without effect. This is not talking about um, God having faith in something, placing his faith in something. It's talking about the, the general truth about God, God's faithfulness. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul explains that some who had received the oracles of God, who had been recipients, Jewish people who had been recipients of God's word, were unfaithful. Some did not believe. We know that from our own reading of God's word, right? The children of Israel had received the word. They traveled to the promised land, but some of them did not believe that God would deliver them, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, faithless, even though they had been recipients of God's word. We can consider the likes of Achan and King Saul. There are plenty of recipients of the word who had the word, but were not faithful, did not believe. Paul asks us the question. He raises the objection now. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And he gives a quick answer in verse 4. God forbid. Let God be true, though or but every man is a liar. As it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. The same is true today. There are plenty of people who have the word of God in their home who are not believing. There are people who are church-going people in the best county in the U.S. of A., Lancaster County, right? Lots of church-going people who are not faithful, are not true. There are going to be people sitting in this room who have been baptized, given verbal profession of faith, joined a church, but who actually are unfaithful. They do not truly believe. Paul gives us the objection that someone may raise to, to chapter 2's teaching on the inadequacy of the law and circumcision. 
What if some had been so blessed by being recipients of the oracles, but they didn't believe? What then? So Paul replies that in no way, their unbelief in no way changes the faithfulness of God. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul screams, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Paul says, the whole world can go to hell, but God is going to be faithful. It's Paul's claim to us. This is Paul's teaching to us. Have you been betrayed? Have you felt the pressures of life and leaned on someone else, rightly so, as we were created to do, and you leaned on someone else, else to help you through, only to be betrayed? That hurts, doesn't it? Maybe you've gone through some heartbreaking situation, but you knew that you could always depend on one of your parents, especially, or your spouse, or a good friend. Then sadly, because they're human, they disappointed you also. They didn't pull through for you in some particular way. Here's the truth of the matter, Christian. It doesn't matter how many humans fail you. It doesn't matter how close you are to those humans who do fail you. It doesn't matter if every human fails you. You can be confident that God will never fail you. God is faithful. In the answer to his own question, Paul quotes from Psalm 51. Verse 4, in our text it says, As it is written... Modern translations have quotation marks to help you there, but he says, as it is written, and then he begins a quote um, there at the end of verse 4. So he's not, this, when he says that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged, the thous and the thys are not referring to the Roman Christians to whom he's writing. They're referring to God as he quotes from David's Psalm 51. So keep a finger in Romans chapter 3 and turn to the Psalter. Psalm 51. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Psalm 51. This is the great psalm of penitence. This is David's psalm of, of confession of his sin after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And we read in Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgression." Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And then here, here, here it is the quote. He's, oh, he, he, uh, he's going to quote from verse 4 here. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Here it is. That thou mightest be justified, that God, you might be justified when you speak and be clear, fair, just. When you judge, true repentance acknowledges that God is just when he speaks, that God is blameless when he judges. After his confession, David declares that God is right in his sentence of judgment, in his sentence of punishment. God is not guilty of doing anything wrong in pronouncing judgment on David. In other words, God is faithful to David after David has been faithless. A recipient of the oracles of God did not follow God's instruction. God remained faithful. You can flip back to Romans. Paul wants us to understand that God is faithful after faithlessness. 
Friends, God is true to himself. In other words, God being faithful after our, faith, or after our faithlessness is an act of God being God. Part of God being God is that he is faithful. Our nation, our own nation, has been faithless, right? We have made poor, poor choices as a nation over the years. And on November 3rd or 4th or 5th or whenever we have the final decision, half of America probably will be disappointed one way or the other. But you know what? Even after faithlessness by the bride, by, by the, the church across a nation, even after that, God will be faithful. Nothing can stop God from being faithful because it's who he is. James reminds us that there's no variableness or shadow of change with God. If God was faithful after David's faithlessness, God would be faithful for the, the Roman Christians after their faithlessness. And praise God, God will be faithful to us after our faithlessness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. It's part of who he is. God is faithful and he is just to forgive you for your sins. God is faithful to provide for your needs. God is faithful to extend mercy to you. God is faithful to love you. He's faithful to, to open his arms and to welcome you. Didn't we read that earlier this morning? Come unto me, Jesus said, all you who are heavy laden. God is faithful. If you forget everything else that has been said this morning, walk away with that truth. God is faithful. Christian, rehearse the steadfastness of God's character all through the journey that you have of this life. We will each be confronted with so much junk, so much sin, our own faithlessness, others' sin, our sin, trials of illnesses and financial loss and relationship grief and sorrow and grieving over death and, and marital or parental or career disappointments, and the list goes on. And what we can come away with is that regardless of all that's changing in this life, you can take it to the bank that God is faithful. It's who he is. It's part of his being God. God is faithful to bless his people with his word, and God is faithful to bless his people after faithlessness. Secondly, this morning, God is faithful to judge his people. Verse 5 says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show, commends, if our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall, we, how, how shall God judge the world? First of all, God is faithful to judge his people with righteous justice. Paul brings up another objection. If human sin has manifested something good, which we've already seen, that God remains faithful, if human sin has highlighted something good about God, does that make God unrighteous? To judge sin? Does that make God unrighteous to punish sin? God here is being accused in this objection of, of using the Jews to his advantage. God is being accused of showing his righteousness through their failure. And therefore the accusation is that God is unrighteous and cannot possibly rightly judge those whom he has used in this way. And Paul fires back again in verse 6. By no means, God forbid. God does not act unjustly when he inflicts wrath on his people. God is a God of the, the judge of the whole earth who does all things correctly. It's impossible for God to act in unjust ways. 
He's always just. Just like the char- it's God's character to be faithful, it is also in God's character to be just. His faithfulness and his justice are absolutes. R.C. Sproul said it this way, If we were to die tonight and wake up in hell tomorrow, we would be most unhappy. But we would know that the fact that we are there is just. God is just in his judgment. Friends, there are a lot of injustices in our world today, aren't there? There is certainly racial injustice, political injustice, relationship injustice, injustice of many, many kinds. We hope for and we pursue justice for all during this earthly pilgrimage. But we also have to recognize that only God is perfectly just. No human being is. So until that final judgment day, there will not be perfect justice meted out in all the circumstances. You can trust God for justice. He is not unrighteous to inflict wrath, to take vengeance. When you see injustices in our world, you should intervene as you are able. But when you have done all that you can and it's still not enough, be reminded that God is the judge of the world and he does judge with righteous judgment, righteous justice. So God is is faithful to judge his people with righteous justice. Secondly, God is faithful to judge his people for their lack of repentance. Verse 7. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, so in other words, if through my sin, if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I yet being considered a sinner? Why am I judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we have slanderously as we be slanderously reported, as some affirm that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Paul replies, their damnation is just. This argument is similar to what happens in verse 5. The objection is, should I just do evil so that something good can come out of it? God's going to receive glory? Can I, should I just do evil? Paul tells us that, Some will illogically reason that their sin actually shines lights on the glory of God. Here we learn that just because God is a God of truth, it doesn't mean that we should continue in sin. Think ahead towards Judgment Day, if you will, for just a moment. Can you imagine what it will be like for Judas Iscariot on that day? What if he were to attempt to claim on Judgment Day that the best thing that ever happened to the world was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And that if it were not for his betrayal of Christ, there would be no atonement. And then, in a a moment of final illogical defiance, he asks the question, he actually verbalizes, so why am I being condemned as a sinner? Paul would reply, his damnation is just. This is an objection to the gospel that some may bring up If my religion is not adequate, if my sin highlights the glory of God, then why am I even being condemned as a sinner? And Paul gives the briefest responses. Their condemnation, their damnation is fair. God is faithful to judge those who refuse to repent of their sin. Paul's theology does not leave room for a carnality. He never said, let's do evil that good may come. God's faithfulness does not preclude God from judging the Jews or any other person who fails to repent. Friend, I want to pause and offer to you an invitation. I want to invite you to see the seriousness of failure to repent 
of sin. Only those who repent of sin and believe in the sacrificial work of Jesus to atone for their sins will be saved from the fair, the righteous judgment of God. If you have never repented of your sin, you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be born again, I invite you to do that now, today. God is faithful to judge all who refuse to repent of their sin. God is faithful. He's faithful to bless people with his word. He's faithful to bless after the faithlessness. God is faithful to judge his people with righteous justice and for their lack of repentance. Now as we close, zoom out with me just a little bit. Zoom out to remember that these eight verses fall into the bigger section of Romans that we've labeled the heart of the gospel. We see that God's faithfulness is at the very heart of the gospel. If we traced it from, from Eden to eternity, we would see that in the Garden of Eden, God was faithful to bless his people with his words. He literally walked with them and talked with them in the garden. He gave them his words and his promises. He remained faithful after their faithlessness. And yet, he punished them. He judged them. He judges people because of their sin. He punished them severely. And ever since, God has remained faithful both in blessing his people and in judging his people. By the time of Jesus when he went to the cross, there have been generations of faithless people, but God was faithful in going through with his plan to sacrifice his one and only son. And one day, God will be faithful to judge those who never repented and believed in Jesus for salvation. So, what now? God is faithful. What does that mean for me? What does it mean for walking out of this room this morning? How can we be doers of the word and not hearers only? All morning, I've kind of hinted around some of these take-home applications, but let's conclude by being very specific. You can respond to this passage first with informed evangelism. As you talk to your neighbors, as you talk to your coworkers, your extended family members, people who do not yet, have not yet trusted in Jesus to be their Savior, some of them may raise some of the same objections that Paul raised against his teaching. Be ready to answer from God's Word. Understand the faithfulness of God, that God judges justly. Secondly, evaluate your own life. Are you taking license to sin just because you know that Jesus has made a sacrifice for sin? Friend, be very, very careful. If that is your situation, you're taking license to sin because you know that Jesus has made a sacrifice for sin, be careful. If that is your situation, there's no eternal assurance that God's word gives to you if you're going in that direction. Thirdly, establish relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ that will lovingly confront you when you go astray so that you are reminded that God is faithful. Because there are going to be times when you feel your own faithlessness and you wonder, how in the world can I go back to God? Will he forgive me? Surround yourself with friends that push you back to Jesus, that tell you, run to Christ. He is faithful. He is just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. And fourthly, perhaps the most glaring application of this text is to worship. It's simply to rest. It's to rejoice in the faithfulness of God. My friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, God is faithful. He's given to you his word God is with you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. God is faithful. And that changes everything 
about our journey in this life. Our prayer is that God will help us to be reminded of his ongoing faithfulness to us. Let's bow our heads and